Hey there, I'm Julie, and this is the Married to Addiction podcast. If you're here, then you're probably what I call my secret sister. We're in a situation we never asked to be in and fighting a battle we never wanted to fight. We're faith-filled women who are married to an alcoholic, and it affects every inch of our lives. If that sounds like you, then this is a safe place for you to land. Married to Addiction is a faith-based podcast where I help you find the tools and strength you need to navigate your husband's addiction without losing yourself in the process. So please subscribe and tune in as often as you can, because your husband's recovery is important, but so is yours. Psst, I have something for you, and it's free. Did you know that I offer a completely free 40-page coaching workbook for the wife of an alcoholic? If you don't have it, I would love to get it to you. I put this workbook together to basically help you if you are feeling totally confused and losing hope that things will ever change with your husband. This workbook contains all of the things that I know can make a real difference in your situation. It has coaching, it has guidance, it has worksheets and exercises to help you actually figure out how you can apply the things I tell you in there to your specific situation. There's checklists, there's planners. All of the things in the workbook are things that I know from experience will get you on the path to clarity, healing, and peace. I would absolutely love to share this with you. And again, you can get it completely for free. All you have to do is head to my website, marriedtoaddiction.com. You will see a tab there called Free Coaching Workbook. You enter your information and it will land in your inbox. I hope you love it. Hello and welcome in to episode 71 of the Married to Addiction podcast. This episode, I'm really excited about this. It's called Is Addiction Pre-Programmed? And today I'm speaking with Dr. Evelyn Higgins, who is an internationally recognized expert in the epidemiology of substance use disorders, process addictions, and mental health conditions. She's also the founder and CEO of Wired for Addiction. Dr. Higgins, thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm super excited to talk to you. Uh, My pleasure, Julie. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm fascinated by your work, and I really wanted to speak with you here on my podcast because, um, as we were talking about before, it's really important for me to not only use this platform to help the wives, but also to help them get a better understanding of what addiction is really like on the other person's side. So can we start by you just telling us a little bit more about the type of work you do? Sure. So uh, I am the CEO of Wired for Addiction. We are a company that looks at the biological component of mental health disorders and addiction. So when we talk about addiction, we know that it's a biopsychosocial disease, and that's what makes it so complex because there's so many layers to it. But really, in, in that triangle, the physiology part is not truly addressed other than if someone is on medically um, assisted treatment, MAT drugs, that kind of thing. It's not individualized to the unique DNA that that person has. And that's what we focus on in our company. And that's the work that we do. And I think it's really important to keep in mind that it is individualized. What does that what does that mean as far as the things that you see for a specific person um, that might be prone to addiction? Sure. So we can identify by using biomarkers where the genetic weaknesses are in that individual. 
So everything becomes genetic guided and personalized to their treatment, not a one size fits all. Because let's face it, I mean, addiction typically is over a period of time. No one wakes up one day and says, hey, I'm an alcoholic or, you know, hey, I'm whatever the addiction is. It's it's over time. You're not healthy one day and sick the next. It's everything that's going on in between there. So it takes time to get to that place. And there are all different reasons for that individual. As I said, the complexity, the biopsychosocial. So what we're focusing on is those biomarkers. We look at neuroscience. We look at things called neurotransmitters, those brain chemicals like serotonin, dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, phenylethylalanine, the list goes on and on. And then we look at hormones from stress hormones to sex hormones or androgens and how those interact. And then we look at science word here, single nucleotide polymorphisms, genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. All that means is that there's an error in the genetic coding. And that error then creates behaviors, what we call aberrant behaviors, things like risk-taking, impulse control, addiction, anxiety, depression. We identify these. So we isolate, we measure, we identify, and then we can truly see where we need to support that individual. That's amazing that 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 even exists to be able to do that. I think a lot of people are really going to be surprised to know that that's even a thing because so often people think that, um, you know, most uh, of the people that succumb to addiction, a lot of it is, uh, you know, about how they were raised or, you know, childhood trauma, which I know does come into it. But how how much of that factors in as opposed to the things that you were just speaking about? Like how much of it is environment and how much of it is truly just genetics? So, you know, the, the numbers are somewhere around 50% on both sides of that. So both play a role. And as you said, Julie, we've been focusing only on the, um, the what did you grow up in? You know, what was your environment? What's your environment now? Well, that that's important. That's definitely a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the entire puzzle. You know, we can talk about somebody's childhood forever. And still that person is trying to white knuckle their sobriety because the physiology has never been really looked at, you know, and and another part of this work, Julie, is that it really eliminates that moral flaw, that stigma, that, that thing that still exists today that shouldn't when we recognize this as a disease. We, we say just like anything else, it's, you know, if in your family, there are Cancer is a problem. Well, you should know that going into the game of your life. You know, how do I want to play it out? What kind of lifestyle do I want to live? You know, if cardiovascular is within your family, we, we share that information with people. But when it comes to mental health and addiction, we kind of like, yeah, well, you got yourself here, get yourself out of here. There's such an inequity that exists within healthcare, and that's really why what why we created what we did at Wired for Addiction to even the playing field, that this is actually a disease. It's not a moral flaw. And address it as a disease using technology. And part of the technology that we use was only available to us in 2015. One of the areas that we look at was only um, actually in 2017, 
Japanese physician won the Nobel Prize for understanding the interaction on a cellular level for one of the things that we look at. So it's this this is actually cutting edge new. And if people haven't heard of it, it's because it hasn't been around. Yeah, you guys are basically going way deeper into something that I've talked about before, which is a lot of times there's a co-occurring disorder happening in the background. Um, so for my husband, that was huge. Once he found out that he had had bipolar disorder and had for probably, they said, up to 30 years, mm-hmm. it made it easier for him to, A, understand what was truly happening to him because he always told me this one line that just stuck with me. He'd always say, something else is wrong. Mm-hmm. Aside from the addiction, aside from the drinking, aside from everything else, he would say, something else is wrong. And that's what was wrong. And so when that was identified, addressed, treated, that was part of his being able to to get sober because this the something else that was wrong was being addressed. And so you guys are going even deeper into that because obviously when you find out you do have a bipolar diagnosis, um, you know, depression, whatever it is, then, you know, there's certain certain ways that you can go about trying to get that treated. But oftentimes it's very convoluted. So you have to find the right doctor. You have to find a med that actually works for you that doesn't have terrible side effects. Like there's kind of all of that. But it sounds like what you are doing is kind of streamlining that process to address not just whatever the diagnosis is, but what's underneath that diagnosis. Is that right? Absolutely, Julie. And that's such an important part of what we do because, you know, let's face it, someone winds up with an addiction. We we're looking at a diagnosed condition being treated incorrectly, which happens an undiagnosed condition, like the case of your husband and or trauma and or one, two, three of those. So that person finds themselves self-medicating and the earlier in that individual's life. I mean, I talk to people that say, I remember my first beer at four years old, sitting on the beach, My dad was going in the water. He said, hold on to this. He said, I took a sip. And for the first time, I felt good. Four years old. And we hear stories Mm -hmm. like this over and over again. So, you know, again, in this addiction space, there were facilities that were just dual diagnosis and very few because they're like, no, we're just treating the addiction. Well, we're, we're treating the mental health piece. Let's face it. It's all under the umbrella of the mental health piece. No one would be trying to self-medicate if there weren't something underlying that they were trying to escape from and get rid of and put out of fire, be that, you know, anxiety, depression, bipolar, OCD, ADHD, ADD, the list goes on and on. But that's the reason someone would even start. The process of drinking or whatever their go-to is, you know, and it's whatever point in your life that you find it, be it a process addiction, things like gambling, sex, shopping, food, things like that, or a substance, it's at a certain age, you found this self-medication that made you feel better and it worked until it didn't work. Initially, everybody says, whoa, that was it. It works until it doesn't work, and then that becomes the next problem. Mm-hmm. And that's what you described about that person taking that drink and saying, oh, my gosh. My husband has described that same exact thing to me. I think he said he was 12 or 13, and he said it was the first time that um, I could switch my brain to a place that felt comfortable. Right, right, exactly. Which was just 
I mean, and, and so obviously that is so much deeper than just, you know, liking beer or liking how it feels to be drunk or even inebriated. It's literally like a change that makes, he always said that it, it made him feel normal. Right. Exactly. What he would, what he would perceive as normal. So exactly. it's, it's so, such important information exactly. to have when you're, when you love somebody that's going through this. You talked a little bit about um, neurotransmitters, and that is something actually that we had looked into before my husband's uh, bipolar diagnosis. We had tried to look into a lot of other different types of things, and neurotransmitters was one of the things that he had tested. Um, of course, he was drinking a lot at the time, so I'm sure that did have an impact on you know what was happening in his body. But can you talk a little bit more about that specifically? Explain a little bit about what that means and how it's related to addiction. Sure. So the neurotransmitters are brain chemicals, and they all have biochemical pathways of how they work in our body. And those biochemical pathways are the same for each individual. It's when they're derailed that it changes, but the pathway is the same. And each one of those neurotransmitters has what we call a clinical correlation, meaning that it makes us behave in a certain way when our levels are optimal versus when our levels are less than optimal. So that's our starting point. And that's why we use neurotransmitters in the neuroscience portion of this, because we want to look at those pathways and be able to identify where we need support and to what level we need support. For, for, to see a pathway completed in a neurotransmitter, there are so many steps along the way that have to go right that include cofactors and enzymes and, and all these other parts that make it be a completed pathway that works correctly. So that's just one part of what we're looking at. That's fascinating. I just, it's its just so, every time I hear about all of the things that are going on under the surface, it's just so vast and so much wider than any of us understand. We just think our husbands, I mean, initially I thought my husband just drinks too much because he likes to party. <laughs> it wasn't, I mean, you know, yeah, sometimes that was the case, but that wasn't the underlying. So it's just so important to know this stuff. What about the genetic markers that you talked about? Because that's something, and I want to talk about another part of this in just a second, but that's something that feels a little bit scary as somebody who loves someone with addiction and has a child <laughs> with that person. Um, how do you find that those usually present themselves? Is that something that's always going to come up for somebody? Is it? Does it just make them more likely uh, to succumb to addiction at some point? Like, how does that factor in? Oh, great, great, great question. You're on the fast track, Julie, to understanding what's known as epigenetics. So mm. it, when we're born, here's your cards, play it out, right? Here's your DNA. Get one copy from mom, one copy from dad. These are your cards. But we now know because of the research done in the field of epigenetics, which to me is the most fascinating part of science in our world today, is that these these genes can upregulate or downregulate, mean change their expression. The DNA remains the same, but the expression of the DNA changes. So we see different behaviors. So this is why example, someone says to me, you know, 
in 20 years, I never saw my child behave this way. At 21, they became a different person. That's exactly what happened. The expression of that DNA changed. And, you know, then we'll ask more questions. Well, what was going on in their life? They were in college. They were really struggling. They had their first job. All these other kind of stressors in their environment now play into those genes being turned on. So you are born with your DNA. Boom, this is who you are. But in knowing that, we can then support it should that need arise. And same situation as you, Julie, I married an alcoholic. I had a child. A year after my daughter was born, we find out my husband's adopted. I know nothing about the health history. I'm like, we need to get some answers here. We couldn't find out anything. Apparently, it was a family secret. So I'm left with like, okay, I want to make sure that this doesn't continue through another generation And what do I have to figure out? So that was kind of when I started my deep dive into all this 35 years ago, started in this arena. And then 33 years ago, my daughter is born. So my fast track, if you will, to get more information and say, okay, should I see these behaviors present themselves? I need to be armed with the facts. What do we do? Yeah. And if you can't, if somebody who is kind of predisposed to that can't avoid, I mean, obviously there's going to be stress in our life. And if if that's what's um, kind of activating uh, the propensity towards addiction, what what can that person do to uh, mitigate that? Sure. So, you know, first obviously would do a panel where we recognize what biomarkers we have to support. And then it's the same thing. It's looking at those biochemical pathways and say, what needs to be supported here to have this biomarker play out in a different way? Turn that gene on, turn that gene off. So the expression changes. So basically, what would it look like for somebody who comes in for you, um, you know, obviously without giving all the secrets away, but um, if they come in and they have a panel, like what, um, in general, what kind of treatment do you provide for somebody like that? So first off, it's doing the panel, which is really extensive. It's, we look at um, 69 different biomarkers, rather 85 biomarkers, including the neuroscience part of it, collectively 85 biomarkers. And we get those results back. We then create a biomarker evaluation report based on all of that information for their unique DNA, and then create a protocol based on that. And it's all individual. There's, you know, no two people are the same. We have seven and a half billion people in the world with seven and a half billion different sets of DNA. So it's not going to be exactly the same with everybody, but it's to who they are and what their makeup is and create that protocol support. And we can either do that with someone just saying, I want to get the labs and give me the protocol and I can do it all on my own. Or we do the labs, create the protocol, and then work with that individual over a six month period of time to get them on track. It's <clears throat> we, we go with it either way for people, whatever they works best within their life. And another really good part of it is When someone goes to rehab, you know, they're leaving their family, they're leaving their job, they're leaving forever, whatever period of time. This can be done within your life at home. 
So a really um, more comprehensive way to deal with this situation, as well as a much more realistic way for most people to continue and carry on in their life, yet address what needs to be addressed. Yeah, and that's huge because I remember for us and for a lot of women I work with, you know, the husband going away for treatment is great and what we've always wanted, but it also presents a whole new set of challenges. Like I remember being, you know, by myself for six weeks, you know, basically a single mom, like trying to figure out how to do all of the things on my own and not having that second person here. And it was just really, you know, you want to be hopeful, but it's really scary. And it was just a whole nother set of challenges that I was not prepared for when when he left. I'm really glad he did because he's been sober six years because of that experience. But because I was not anticipating all of those things that I was going to feel when he left, it's nice to know that there is another option for them where you don't have to go through all of that. Absolutely. Is the, um, is the protocol that you mentioned, is it kind of um, more behavioral? Do you work with nutrition? Like how, what does that end up looking like um, for most people? Nutrition, uh, it's nutraceuticals as well as pharmaceuticals, depending on what's needed for that individual. And then also, obviously, talking about the behavior modification parts of things. But in the protocol, we lay out what that individual would need to support whatever biomarkers we, that are problematic. I'll also add, Julian, in the dynamic of what your podcast is all about, I can share with you when we go over results with people, very often there are tears, tears of joy. Because for the mm-hmm. first time, someone says, that's exactly how I felt my entire life. You just oh, wow. said exactly how I feel. And I can see this objectively for the first time. And also the family is, is seeing this objectively saying, wow, this makes so much sense. And now we have more of a team approach instead of me against you and you against me. So that really helps a lot. Yeah, definitely. It it was really that's why I I just am so adamant about women learning more about addiction because when you view it as they're just doing this mm-hmm. um because they want to or you know, they don't care that they're hurting me like all of those things, it makes it so much harder to to go through this because then it's a you against me thing and it's not usually a you against me thing. It's usually a, you know, them against addiction and you're trying to figure out where your, where your place is that, and you know, what, what piece you have in that. So that's so important to know. Exactly. Is this something, so my husband, as I said, has been sober for six years, but he's still, he's much, much, much better than he was obviously, but he still does have some struggles around, Mm -hmm. um, you know, his bipolar and it's, it's mostly, uh, managed, but there still are some times where he struggles with that. Is is your your process and your treatment something that can help somebody who is in recovery, whether that's new in recovery or have been in recovery for a while but are still struggling with those types of things? Yes, we have people come to us that are both new in recovery and long term in recovery, and saying, "I just want to make sure that I am doing everything I can possibly do to keep my sobriety." And, you know, at the end of it, it's kind of make your life easier and those you love make their life easier by you being optimized to the best that your physiology can be. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. 
So in light of all of this information, how can we as wives support our addicted husbands kind of knowing now that this is going on behind the scenes? Like what are a couple of things that we could do to to help? So I would say, you know, one, probably share this podcast with them and say, you know, let's take a look at your physiology. You know, what I learned is that this is actually science and it's not because you're wanting to be this way and you're wanting to hurt our family and me and all that other kind of stuff that our minds run with. It's that this is your physiology. So let's like take a dive into that and, and address that. And that would be the first thing that I would say for sure. Yeah, because yeah, you, we all know that it, the domino effect in the family is, you know, mom and dad are okay. Then, you know, generally the kids are in a much better place. So it's everybody that is impacted by these kind of decisions. Yeah. And then, so my next question is related to that too what can we do for our kids? So like my son is 11 and we talk about addiction and I've put him through, um, there's a, a child's program that Hazel and Betty Ford has, and he's gone through that and that was helpful, but he still has these genetic markers. And like you said, you know, sometimes the first 20 years are fine and then, you know, they get a little older and they go off the rails. Is there anything we can do to support our kids who, who obviously, you know, have this genetic propensity? Absolutely. So first thing, just like you already did, it's having these open conversations to this is a disease. And, you know, some families, like I said earlier, some families deal with cancer, some families deal with cardiovascular. In our family, we have addiction, we have mental health issues. So we want to talk openly about that. That's the first make. So reducing, getting rid of the stigma, it's a disease. So let's talk about that. And then additionally, yes, I mean, I have a child, as I said, I now have grandchildren. These labs are done on everybody. And, you know, we want to mitigate before a situation would arise. And we want to know then, okay, should a situation arise, here's what we're doing immediately. Not, oh my gosh, what do we do now? I never thought this would happen. What are we going to do? We're ready. So you can tell by doing a panel on a child, you could tell like what specifically, like how likely they are to succumb to addiction or what would be the best course of action right. if they do or how to keep them from that? What are what all so can all you tell from that? One, looking at the biomarkers in the panel would be the predisposition for that individual, that child. We've had panels run on children as young as two, as old as 98. So predisposition would be one, we run a panel, here's what we're looking at. And then two is that we have a protocol, should we need to use that or just saying, you know what, let's optimize what we've already got here. Makes sense. It's so amazing to me that this is available for people. And I just am so glad that you are doing this work. And I hope that it becomes way more mainstream and widespread because like we have talked about so many times here, just knowing what the root really is can make such a difference for everyone who loves somebody who's addicted. So Absolutely. thank you for your oh, work. It's you. so important. Thank you. And, you know, Julie, when we we travel all over and speak and I do a lot of podcasts, I mean, we were in Abu Dhabi presenting to the International Society last year. We were in Hawaii a couple of weeks ago. We were in Connecticut the other day. I mean, we're based out of South Florida. So we're always going and going. And when we share this information, everybody across the board is like, wow, everyone can mm -hmm. have this done. I'm like, right, 
They should be just like when, you know, a CBC, a complete blood count, when you go for your yearly physical. Let's run some blood. Let's see what's going on. Let's, you know, see how many red blood cells, how many white blood cells. That's all good information. But, you know, what we're looking at today with a mental health crisis and addiction crisis, shouldn't we be just jumping in there? And, and people get, mm-hmm. you know, when we share this and we get to talk about how it all works, they're like, why aren't we doing this across the board? And I would have to agree, correct. But, you know, the more and more people hear about it, the more people are saying, gosh, this needs to be done. And and for loved ones, if you're in the situation where, you know, it's part of your family. Yeah. And this science could, I mean, could help in so oh, many different absolutely. arenas. Absolutely. It just makes my head spin. How can they find sure. you? Sure. So our website is Wired for Addiction, all spelled out, wiredforaddiction.com. You can go there, learn more about what we do. You can even um, create a 15-minute complimentary consult just to share what's going on with you and or your loved one. And would this be something, what you've already done in treatment, would this be something that would be a good fit for you? So we are really opening, open to helping as many people as we can. So that's, that's a way to go learn. Here's what we do. We work with people directly who come to us. We work with treatment facilities. We even work with the justice system and people who are in prison. So there's a lot of funnels of where people come to us from, but at the end of it, it's all the same, helping an individual. That's awesome. Dr. Higgins, thank you so much for the work that you do. It's so important. And, you know, those of us who have been touched by addiction just really, really know how important it is. So thank you so much. And thank you for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Julian. Thank you for what you do and keep on doing it because this is how information gets spread to help people. Agreed. Thank you so much. Hey, one more quick thing before I let you go today. Do you follow Married to Addiction on either Instagram or Facebook or both? If not, I would love to have you join me over there. It's a great place to stay connected with everything that's happening with Married to Addiction. I post updates about um, my podcast episodes, of course. I post about my freebies. I post about my programs. I post uh, encouragement in the way of Bible verses and things like that. I also post just like some helpful little teaching nuggets sometimes too. So I really think that you would get a lot of value out of that as the wife of an alcoholic. And I would love to have you join me on either Facebook or Instagram, or both. You can find me at facebook.com backslash married to addiction, or just at married to addiction on Instagram. I hope to see you there.